0: There have been many great African-American writers, from Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston to James Baldwin and Toni Morrison. It's a rich literary tradition that has boldly and vividly captured the black experience in the United States. But African-American literature as we know it largely came into its own in the mid-19th century, namely before, during, and after the American Civil War. This makes sense, as escaped and newly emancipated slaves were finally granted the opportunity to forge their own unique identities and make names for themselves at that time. But did you know that, a century prior, a black woman became a literary sensation, gaining both a national and international following? Phyllis Wheatley Peters, better known simply as Phyllis Wheatley, was a slave who served the Wheatley family of Boston. Under their ownership, she was educated, a rare privilege for an enslaved person, and showed amazing prowess as a poet. She quickly became a household name in Colonial America. America, and word of her talent even reached the opposite side of the Atlantic. Who was Phyllis Wheatley? How did she gain fame in a time when blacks were largely seen as mere property and manual labor? And how did she pave the way for all other African American writers that followed? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to Black History Month on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. It's important to note that Phyllis Wheatley was by no means the first African-American writer. There were others, contemporaries such as Lucy Terry and Jupiter Hammond, both of whom gained considerable renown throughout the colonies for their work in poetry and even fiction. But they never achieved acclaim in their lifetimes in the way that Phyllis Wheatley did, though their work, along with hers, has survived down to our current age and has been rediscovered, as it were, as important early works of black literature in America. What set Wheatley apart, aside from her skill as a writer, were the accolades she received on both sides of the Atlantic, making her the first black literary sensation. Though the exact date of her birth is unknown, scholars for the most part agree upon a year. 1753. She was born somewhere in West Africa, most likely present-day Senegal or the Gambia. At around the age of seven, she was sold by a local chieftain to a passing slave trader and transported across the Atlantic to Boston on a ship known as the Phyllis, from which she received her name, with other quote-unquote refugee slaves, those too young or frail for rigorous labor in the southern colonies or the West Indies. Upon her arrival, she was sold to John Wheatley, a wealthy Boston tailor and merchant, for a trifle, according to ship records, because the captain felt that she was terminally ill. The fact of the matter was that the child suffered from asthma, which undoubtedly flared up in this new environment in which she found herself. Indeed, she was described as having slender frame and evidently suffering from a change of climate, and nearly naked with no other covering than a quantity of dirty carpet about her. Nevertheless, John Wheatley brought her home, essentially as a domestic servant for his wife, Susanna. While she was exempt from doing some of the more arduous tasks around the Wheatley estate, the young Phyllis was nevertheless expected to perform various household chores. A precocious child, and despite her standing as a slave, the Wheatleys encouraged her education, with their daughter, 18-year-old Mary, serving as her first tutor. With the aid of their son, Nathaniel, as well, Phyllis soon learned to read and write. From an early age, she was introduced to a variety of subjects, such as geography— History, astronomy, and literature. Of these, she expressed a particularly fervent interest in literature, and was exposed first to the ancient Greek and Roman classics of Homer, Virgil, Ovid, and Terence, and later on to the works of English luminaries such as John Milton and Alexander Pope, and even became well-versed in the Bible. By the age of 12, she could read, write, and speak ancient Greek and Latin just as well as the English she used on a daily basis. It was around this time that she began dabbling in poetry, to which the Wheatleys naturally took notice and greatly encouraged. Her first published poem, On Messrs. Hussey and Coffin, appeared a year later in the December 21st, 1767 edition of The Mercury, a newspaper based in Newport, Rhode Island. Inspired by an actual event, it tells the harrowing story of two men's survival at sea following a shipwreck. The poem received a fair amount of acclaim and notice in that neighboring colony, but little did she know that her career was about to take off. Three years later, in 1770, an event took place that would cement her reputation, not just as the first celebrated black poet in America, but one of the preeminent poets of her day. On September 30th that year, George Whitefield, one of the founders of the evangelical movement and the Methodist denomination of Christianity, passed away at the age of 55. A towering figure in both his native Britain as well as her North American colonies, he had spent much of the 1730s and 40s in a series of traveling sermons and revivals, and was known for his fiery oration, which combined religious rhetoric, drama, and patriotism. Naturally, he was heavily mourned on both sides of the Atlantic, and it wasn't long before a now 16-year-old Phyllis Wheatley was moved to write a poem to mark the occasion. The result was the aptly titled An Elegiac Poem on the Death of That Celebrated Divine and Eminent Servant of Jesus Christ, the Learned and Reverend George Whitefield. It first appeared as a broadside, that is, a full one-page spread in newspapers, and a pamphlet in Boston, Newport, and Philadelphia. It was an instant sensation in New England, but then it appeared alongside the sermon from the funeral in London newspapers as well, leading to international acclaim for its author. Fired by this development... Wheatley spent the next two years furiously writing and putting out poetry, so that, by the age of 18, she had amassed a compilation of sub-28 poems and set about publishing them in book form. Despite her newfound literary stardom, she was disheartened to find that American publishers weren't all too keen to publish the work of a black woman. Frustrated but determined, she, along with the help of Susanna Wheatley, instead sought publication in Britain. Luckily, they found it in the form of one Selena Hastings, Countess of Huntingdon, a champion of both evangelical and abolitionist causes the countess in turn instructed her friend archibald bell a british bookseller to begin correspondence with the poet a trip to britain soon followed and on may 8th 1771 wheatley accompanied by nathaniel wheatley set sail for london to meet with bell Upon arrival, she received a warm welcome from such political dignitaries as the poet Baron George Littleton, abolitionist patron the Earl of Dartmouth, philanthropist John Thornton, and even Benjamin Franklin. The outcome of this meeting was a slim yet rich volume of poetry known as Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, published in 1773, and served as a literary milestone, as it was the first volume of poetry by an African American ever published. The subject matter of this collection is quite diverse, to say the least, for it not only showcases her virtuosity as a writer, but also her passion and mastery of such forms as Greco-Roman and English poetry, as well as the Bible and language itself. But what's on display here isn't just the subjects for which she came to love under the tutelage of the Wheatley family. It's oftentimes deeply personal, which is what makes her work so resonant. Using the subjects she loved as a means of expression, she drew attention to slavery, naturally choosing to focus upon her own experiences of being whisked away from her home as a small child. This can best be seen in the aptly titled On Being Brought from Africa to America. "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a Savior, too. Once I redemption, neither sought nor knew, some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolic dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as Cain, may be refined and join th' angelic train." Here, Wheatley not only boldly addresses an issue that few dare to speak of at the time, let alone an enslaved African-American woman, but encourages those who purport to be against it to speak up in support of Black people. By referring to her own experience, she is able to make the personal a call to action, something the 20th century Black novelist James Baldwin would incorporate into such works as The Fire next time. Wheatley was a pioneer, to be sure, one to whom all great African-American writers who followed looked to and admired for her skill and bravery. Poems on various subjects, religious and moral, proved to be a huge success on both sides of the Atlantic, and launched Wheatley to literary stardom. Accolades came in from everyone, from fellow African-American poet Jupiter Hammond, all the way up to George Washington, the latter of whom Wheatley would later have the pleasure of meeting. In early 1774, she was freed by the Wheatley family, and its matriarch, Susanna, died a couple months later. Despite her fame and popularity, the good life would elude Wheatley. In the ensuing few years, much of the Wheatley family would pass away, with John and Mary. Mary in 1778 and Nathaniel in 1783. Then, in 1778, despite objections from her friends, Wheatley married a grocer named John Peters, a free black who saw himself as an entrepreneur. Despite the ambitions he harbored, his lack of business acumen, largely due to his upbringing as a slave, combined with the harsh socioeconomic situation during and after the American Revolution, soon led to the couple's being in debt. Try as they might to seek employment, they found themselves in competition with whites in a tough job market. Though Wheatley would serve as a charwoman for four years between 1779 and 1783, her husband would dodge creditors while continuing to seek employment. In the last year of her life, Wheatley found herself living in rather squalid conditions. Having separated from John Peters, she spent her days pent up in a squalid apartment in a rundown section of Boston, grappling with sickness. Despite her health, she continued to write, and was even preparing a second volume of poems. As with her initial book, American publishers still refused to publish the work of a black woman, though her poems did appear in newspapers and other publications at the time. On december fifth, seventeen eighty four, she passed away, abandoned and alone, a tragic end for a figure as important and beloved as she was. But, as they say, every cloud has a silver lining. Luckily, her sole volume, poems on various subjects, religious and moral, as well as a handful of other poems, have been collected in anthologies as well as standalone editions to this day, which will ensure that her legacy be passed down to future generations. She was honored by contemporaries as, quote, the favorite of the nine muses and Apollo, unquote, as John Paul Jones said, and that, her style and manner of poetry exhibit a striking proof of her great poetical talents, unquote, said George Washington. A bronze likeness of Wheatley stands on the Boston Women's Memorial, and her name appears on countless public buildings and schools throughout the country. In 2002, the professor and scholar Molefi Kete Asante placed her on his list of the 100 greatest African Americans. And, as of July 16, 2019, the former site of Archibald Bell's bookshop in London bears a blue historic plaque commemorating the first black writer whose fame reached both sides of the Atlantic. These are all fitting tributes for a figure who pioneered the African American voice in literature and paved the way for all who followed in her footsteps. The story of Phyllis Wheatley isn't so much a story of firsts as it is a story of success. In a time when blacks were seen as property and manual labor, she rose above the stereotypes and the notion that such people were inferior to their white counterparts. Her early and late life may not have been easy, but the impression she left on both literature and history will never be forgotten. She was a trailblazer and visionary whose words still carry weight and meaning over 200 years after they were penned. Thanks for listening. For those who remember my closing statement from last week's episode, I will be doing Black History Month-themed episodes throughout February in honor of African-American luminaries and achievements. Next week, we'll be taking a look at the Tuskegee Airmen, the unsung heroes of World War II. I do so hope you'll join me then. In the meantime, you can catch up on all of my previous episodes by going to anchor.fm slash historylovescompany or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like what you hear and would like to support me, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. By visiting the aforementioned site, you will find three monthly payment plans which fit any budget. Any and all support, even just listening and sharing, is greatly appreciated, and I'm thankful to all of you for tuning in. Be sure to tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next week.